What a great day to be in the house of the Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen. I love the enthusiasm. I love the passion. Keep that for a moment. And now use that to welcome those around you. Let them know that you're glad that they are here this morning. You will return to your seats. You may be seated. I want to welcome you to Northside Baptist Church. We're thankful that you're here today. Our prayer is that you see that we are a church that believes and stands upon Jesus Christ as our solid rock and that our hope is in Jesus and that we do, in fact, even in the midst of darkness that surrounds us, we have hope and his name is Jesus. Amen. If this is your first time with us, welcome. We are thankful that you're here today. You are our guest. We pray that you would, you would feel that. We pray that you would feel the love of Northside, that if there is any way that we can encourage you, help you, pray for you, we want to be faithful to do that. So please don't hesitate um, to let us know that. There's a couple ways you can let us know that this is your first time. One, there's a QR code. If you are good with technology, you can do that. You can scan it with your phone and fill out some information, or you can just fill out a piece of paper. There's a connection card out there um, in the foyer. We would appreciate if you would do that. Um, either in the bulletin you probably noticed, or maybe just by observing the front, that today we are uh, partaking of the Lord's Supper together as the church family. We'll do that at the end of the service. Um, this is not something that we just tack on. Right, this is a vital part of our gathering this morning. And so the scripture says, right, let a man examine him, his heart before he partakes. And so we want you throughout the service to be examining your heart. If there's any sin that needs to be confessed, need to be repented of, anything that you just need to give over to the Lord, we pray that you would do that before uh, we eat of the bread and drink of the cup um, later on. Um, just a couple of announcements before we do our praying the scripture. We have a couple opportunities for you to serve. We have multiple opportunities for the next three months for you to give and for you to serve. Um, but you have two opportunities uh, this month. One is the Coweta Pregnancy Services. Um, we talked about this last week. There's an announcement in the bulletin. There are several things that they're asking for specifically. You have today and then you have the next two Sundays to bring those items because then the youth and some of the adults that help with the youth are going on the 19th to take those and then to help and serve um, at the pregnancy center. Those items are listed here. Out there by the connect board, there is a table. 
The pregnancy center items go on top. There's a sign there. Bring those back over the next couple weeks. Then we also have an opportunity with bridging the gap. Since COVID, they have increased in, by 300% the amount of people that they are serving and helping. And this Thanksgiving, they're going to serve 1,200 families a meal. And so what they're doing is they're looking for people to partner with them, and they're telling us, we need you to bring this item. So for Northside, that's green beans. So for the entire month of October, through October 30th, the last Sunday of October, bring green beans. It can be any brand. I don't think they're specific on what type of green bean. The only specification is it needs to be in the 14.5-ounce jars, cans, right? That's the, the regular size because they're giving those to families, and they want to make sure everybody's getting the same amount. So you can go to Kroger, wherever you want to go, Publix, Aldi, wherever they have green beans, get as much as you can, and they're going to go under the table because that will probably get pretty heavy. So it's going to go under the table, and you have to the entire month, and then Awana's partnering with us in this as well. They always do this in October, and so maybe Awana families, you've already bought something else. That's awesome. Bring that too, but if you haven't bought anything yet for the Awana, the mission emphasis, get some green beans, and then we're just hopefully just going to shower um, bridging the gap in those families um, with that blessing. And so just want you to be a part of that. All right, praying the scripture this morning. It'll be on the screen. It's John 15, verse 13. It says this, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. As we, this morning, work through the service, through the singing and the preaching and then leading up to the Lord's Supper, we want to be mindful that Jesus Christ laid down his life. We talked about this recently, and he did that voluntarily. It wasn't taken from him. He laid down his life for you and for I so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be saved. And then we are called to go be willing to lay down our lives for others. And so this morning, would you just look at that verse, just take a moment, pray through this verse, however the Lord prompts you, whether it's Thanksgiving or a specific prayer, and then I will pray for us, and then we're going to sing some hymns together. Jesus, you are the living hope. In just a few minutes, the choir is going to declare through song, we believe, that we believe these certain things to be true about the Word of God, about the Gospel, about God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Father, we know that there is no hope, that there is no salvation apart from the shedding of blood. That is what leads to the forgiveness of sins. And everything that we read in the Old Testament, every sacrifice, is all pointing to Jesus. Jesus, you are the fulfillment of all of that. Jesus, you laid down your life for us. And then on the third day, you were raised from the dead, never 
to have to lay down your life again never to experience death again and because of that as we talked about thursday with the with the senior friends that gathered or jesus you are the resurrection and the life this morning there is hope for everyone in this room this morning there is the promise of eternal life for everyone who comes to jesus this morning god there is forgiveness for every one of us wretched sinners who have willingly and often rebelled and disobeyed against you prior to Christ and since Christ. And this morning there is forgiveness. There is hope for every person ensnared in sin. There is deliverance. For every lost and dead person that walked in this morning, there is the hope of life. For every blind person who cannot see the truth of the gospel, there is hope that Jesus this morning, they could see for the first time. So God, as we continue to offer up praises, to offer up, Lord, praise from from our lips, may it just be a pleasing aroma to you as you look down upon us this morning, a people who have gathered together to declare that we have been made right with God and also reconciled with one another so that we may now go out and be willing to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters in Christ, but also for those who are in need of the gospel. So, Father, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? Let's continue to worship together.
Miss Alexa. There we go. Now you got to do a hug. All right, at this time, our kiddos are going to make their way to Children's Church. If everybody else will turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. As we finish out this chapter um, this morning. So, this is the fourth sermon that we preached on these verses, beginning in verse 22, going through the end of the chapter. Right, they've been heavy. Uh, this one as well is going to be heavy and uh, weighty at times. Uh, so I thought we might get started on a little bit lighter note um, this morning. And So you know kids have a tendency to say some of the funniest things. And so some kids are asked some different questions about marriage and dating and all that good stuff. So <clears throat> one kid was asked, how do you decide who to marry? The boy said, you got to find somebody who likes the same stuff. Like, if you like sports, she should like it that you like sports, and she should keep the chips and dip coming. <laughs> Pretty smart young man. Uh, another kid was asked, what is the right age to get married? No age is good to get married at. you got to be a fool to get married. <laughs> if you're married, you better not say amen. Next question, how can a stranger tell if two people are married? I like this answer. You might have to guess based on whether they seem to be yelling at the same kids. <laughs> and all parents said, amen. Next question, what do most people do on dates? On the first date, they just tell each other lies. And that usually gets them interested enough to go out for a second date. <laughs> now, this, this one's interesting. What would you do on a first date that was turning sour? This is a little bit extreme. I'd run home and play dead. The next day, all gets better, I will call all the newspapers and make sure they wrote about me and all the dead columns. <laughs> is it better to be single or married? It's better for girls to be single, but not for boys. Boys need someone, boys need someone to clean up after them. Why love happens between two people? Last one. I think you're supposed to get shot with an arrow or something. But the rest of it isn't supposed to be so painful. <laughs> Marriage isn't easy, right? It is painful. It is challenging. It can be difficult. And on top of that, marriage in our culture is under attack. It's under attack from the world. It's under attack from sin. And it's under attack because of Satan. The world, sin, Satan, they are all opposed to God's design for marriage. And so I want you to notice four things as we work our way through these remaining verses. The first thing is to kind of connect back to last week, but we're going to go through this very quickly. Um, so the first thing is a nurturing and protecting love. But I told you last week um, what, what Paul does is he gives two analogies uh, as, to, as to why the husband is to love their wife. Right, the first analogy is because Christ laid down his life. The second analogy we'll see, we'll see here in 28 and 29. But before we jump into that, would you please stand, if you're able, in honor of the reading of God's word. We're going to begin in verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. 
For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Verse 30, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. You may be seated. So the first analogy he gives is that we are to love our wives, men, husbands, because Christ loved the church. The second analogy changes a little bit, and it's more of a self-love focus. Then he says in verse 28, In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. Right. So we're going to see this one flesh principle developed in just a couple verses. And so what Paul is saying is the husband and wife, when they get married, when they become one flesh, they become one body. And he says, therefore, husbands, treat your wives as you, in essence, would treat yourself. So you think physically. Men, you are supposed to be, if you aren't, taking care of your body physically. You nourish it. So that's the first thing he says, right? For no one ever hated his own flesh, verse 29, but nourishes it. That word nourish simply means to provide. It promotes the growth of. It's talking about provision. Men, you should physically take care of your bodies, and if you don't, a day of reckoning is coming, right? A day in which you're going to have the consequences if you neglect your body. Now, we all struggle with that at times, but, but that's what he's saying. Men, if you love your wife as you love yourself, then you're going to nourish her. You're going to provide for her emotionally, physically, spiritually, providing for your wife. And then he says, not only will you nourish her, but you will cherish her just as Christ does the church. That word cherish has the idea of to take care of. It shows affection, right? It's a love that seeks to protect. So husbands, you are called to be willing to sacrifice your life, your desires, your wants for your wife. You are called to love her in a way that seeks to purify her, to help her to become more like Jesus as you lead her. You are to love her in a way that nourishes her and cherishes her. And men, if you do that, when you study the scriptures... What do you see in every female that encounters the love of Jesus Christ? Right, They just begin to love him and they begin to worship him. And so men, if you would love your wives in this way, I believe that all that you wish your wife would be or do, she's just going to willingly just begin to trust you as she sees, hey, he does really care about me. He does really love me. He loves Jesus and he's seeking to lead and guide. And so that kind of wraps up that section. And then the, the next thing I want us to see as we get into verse 30 and 31 is the sanctity of the marriage union. We're going to talk about the marriage union this morning for, the, for most of our time. Because again, our culture has distorted this and stands against it. Verse 30, because we are members of his body. We'll come back to that. Verse 31, therefore, in light of what has been said, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. I made this argument a couple weeks ago that the marriage union is grounded in creation. It's not cultural. So you have a lot of people today to say, well, the Bible's outdated. That was the culture in which Jesus and Paul lived in. We, we've, we've advanced way beyond that. But listen, Paul's not grounding this in culture. He's going back to Genesis 2. Jesus, when asked about divorce, goes right to Genesis chapter 2. It goes back to God's creation 
of the marriage union. So what we see in the Scripture is God's plan and purpose of marriage. Now hear me. God's standard of marriage has not changed. It will not change. You and I may try to redefine it. You and I may call it marriage. But just because we call it marriage doesn't mean God recognizes it as marriage. So God has established what is marriage. So what is marriage? Well, the first thing you and I need to understand based upon verse 31 is this is a voluntary union. This is why we don't do arranged marriages. And this is why we don't force people to get married. This is why I don't think we should pressure people into getting married. This is a voluntary union of people coming together in marriage under God. This is typically a public union. We gather. Maybe it's with 10 people. Maybe it's 1,000 people. Maybe the whole world is watching it, depending on how famous you are. But typically it's public. There's vows that are proclaimed in front of your spouse, in front of the ministered clergy, in front of family and friends. It's public. So it's voluntary. But notice, it is also a heterosexual union. The scripture is clear. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. It even says he leaves his father and his mother. Father, male, mother, female. And holds fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a relationship. The sanctity of marriage is between a man and a woman. Not culturally defined. As defined all the way back in the Garden of Eden. When God creates Adam, and then out of Adam, He creates woman. He creates Eve. And the two become one flesh. It is also a monogamous union. There is one man and one woman. It is not one man and multiple women. Or one lady, multiple men. It's a monogamous union. Now look, is there polygamy in the Old Testament? Yes. But nowhere does God give approval to that. And there's almost always consequences that come along with that. Nowhere does God bless multiple marriages and multiple wives. So it is a monogamous union. The two shall become one. Hear me. It's a permanent union. It's a permanent union. Because what does he say? Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. A man shall leave his father and mother. Notice, we've been talking about this for a couple weeks. There's a shift in devotion here. You catch it? From being devoted to your parents to now you are devoted to your spouse. Parents, you, you catch that? It should be your goal in parenting that your son and your daughter, if it's the Lord's will, gets married. And they live on their own, not in your basement. Or if God chooses for them to be single, that they make it on their own. And when they are married, the goal should be not for you to call them every day and butt into their business and, and make sure your daughter, men, is still having allegiance to you or that your son, mom, still has an allegiance to you. There's a shift in focus. They leave you and then they cleave to one another. 
That word cleave or hold fast means to unite, to cleave, to join oneself too closely, to be glued to. In other words, you're stuck. <laughs> you're, you're glued to each other. So if I were to have a piece of paper, right? If I were to have a portrait of you and then a portrait of your wife and we were to glue them and we were to put the two papers together and let them come together and then you were to try to tear it apart, you're going to make a mess of it. It will not be the way it was prior when you joined them. I told you we were going to get a little heavy. So church, I'm, I, I'm saying this with, with grace and humility and understanding. And look, I'm just one beggar who's preaching to a bunch of other beggars. When we hear about a heterosexual union, most Christians, we don't have an issue with that. Some are starting to, but we don't have an issue with that. We believe the Bible is clear there. When we talk about a monogamous union, most of you aren't going to be raising your hand saying, no, I think I should have as many wives as I want. But when it comes to this permanent union, church, hear me. Sexual sin is sexual sin. And God hates divorce. And the church is just as guilty as a lost culture. And sometimes what happens is we lose our ability to speak on something because we focus on certain things that we don't struggle with. But divorce is a massive church issue. Now hear me. God permits divorce wasn't part of his design wasn't part of his plan but god knows as a result of sin we're jacked up messed up people things are going to happen god knows there's going to be unfaithfulness sexually god knows that there may be abuse that there may be unbelieving a believer and an unbeliever to get married or maybe a believer wasn't a believer when they got married he becomes a believer and the marriage dynamic changes and and so divorce is permitted but it is never god's design the problem is we live in a no-fault divorce culture, which we're just not happy any longer, so we're going to get a divorce. So when I counsel, and I would love to say that every, every couple that I've married, that they're all still married, they're all still together, and I know that's not the case. But when I sit down with a couple in counseling, I ask them, when you're coming together, is divorce on the table? Because if divorce is already an option, I'm not marrying you. Like, you come to this union divorce is not an option ryan can never divorce me because i'm never going to leave like she i mean i don't know i'm gonna have to die right because divorce is not an option she would never divorce me anyways and i would never divorce her why because divorce is not an option why because biblically it's a permanent union now hear me as i'm gonna end my sermon there's forgiveness some of you in this room you're divorced and there's forgiveness for you god can forgive you God, in some cases, maybe if you're divorced and not married again, maybe restores that relationship or, right, you're in another relationship. Some of you came out of abusive relationships. There was unfaithfulness and there's baggage there, but there is forgiveness. There's always forgiveness when you come to Jesus. But the reality is this is a huge issue in which the church has failed on. So it's a permanent union. We continue. It's a one flesh union. Look what he says in verse 30. Because we are members of his body. We have to understand this. So before he gets to the one union between husband and wife, he makes the argument that we are one with Christ. That's the purpose of Ephesians, is that we're in Christ. We've been united with Christ. So C.H. Spurgeon says, we are one with Christ, who made himself one with his people. There's a unity that we have with Jesus. We're one with him. 1 Corinthians 6, 17. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. 
Christ is one with his church. We are one with him, members of his body. And out of that, in the marriage union, you become one with your spouse. That husband and that wife become one flesh. Now, I think this can encompass many things, but I think primarily it's probably referring to the sexual union. Like I know we got some kids in here, and so I don't get real deep into to those things. When kids are here, parents, that's up to you to teach them what the Bible says about that. But the reality is, in the coming together of one flesh, there is a sexual union that takes place. So in marriage, hear me, young folks, hear me, sex is an expression of love and oneness. Some of you came out of homes in which this was openly talked about. That was my family. Like this was not a taboo subject for us. Sex is good. It's glorious. God has created it. It is wonderful in the context of marriage. Some of you came out of a home in which it was never talked about. Like you just, we don't talk about it. You didn't talk about it in church. Like we don't talk about that. And so you see it a little bit different. Like it's kind of taboo, maybe dirty, maybe ungodly. But the reality is it is glorious and beautiful in marriage. Young men and women hear me. It is worth it if you wait. No one, no one who gets married and was absent until they got married regrets it. No one. But this room is filled with people because we're sinners who didn't wait, who tried to get as close to the line without crossing the line. And I promise you, if we started doing testimonies, everyone in here has regrets and would say, yeah, I wish. I wish I would have held out, been more faithful to Jesus. So sex in marriage is an expression of love and oneness, but outside marriage it is an expression of lust and it is immoral. In the confines of marriage, it is glorious and it is beautiful. Outside, it is nothing but destruction and damage. And men and women, young men and women, singles, you will make decisions right now that will have consequences for the rest of your life. What you see, what you allow in your heart, what you allow in your mind, you cannot unsee them. You cannot remove them. They are there for as long as you shall live. So guard your hearts and mind. Alistair Begg, I love what he said. Listen to his sermon this week. The only safe and satisfying place for sex is within the security of a lifelong companionship, not in the shifting shadows of a part-time, short-term experiment. It is only in marriage between one man and one woman who have made a commitment to one another. This is why we are not proponents of cohabitation. And again, that may be some people in this room. You're struggling with that. You're trying to sort that out. But in cohabitation, you're getting all the benefits, and there is zero commitment. None. Now, in marriage, you say, well, there's not a commitment in marriage. People get divorced all the time. But it's not the way God had designed it. You are to make a commitment to that person that you're there till you die or she dies. And so that's why it's a marital covenant. So that's the sanctity of the marriage union. But our remaining time, I want to show you the mystery of the marriage union. Because this is something that I just did not see for many years. I don't remember it really being taught and preached. And so I want you to see the, the mystery of the marriage union. So what does he say? 
He goes back to the ground again in creation. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Go back to Ephesians chapter 3, because it's been months since we looked at these verses. So go back to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 4. Verses 4, 5, and 6, and hang with me. When you read this, chapter 3, verse 4, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. There's that word. Which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles. That defines what the word mystery means. Something that was hidden, not made known, and now has been made known. Jesus has revealed this to the apostles and the prophets by the Spirit. This mystery, what is this mystery? Look at this. It's that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Here it is. The gospel, the good news, what God has been doing from the foundation of the world is that God was going to take a people and he set his affection upon the Jews. He made a covenant with Abraham. Through you, Abraham, I'll make you into a great nation. We see that he loved the Jews, but his plan all along was that through Israel, he would bless the Gentiles and the other nations. So you go through the Old Testament, you go through the Gospels, and then in his time, the Spirit of God reveals what it all was pointing to going back to the garden. And that is this, that God is going to take Jew and Gentile, and he's going to make them one. One body, remember they hated each other, this would not have been easy for them to sort through in the early church, despise one another, but he's taking Jew and Gentile, he's making them one under the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That's the good news, that when you and I stand before Jesus one day, in glory, the new heavens and the new earth, there will be people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. It's not just Israel. It's for you and I in America, too. But it's not just for you and I. It's for every country, every people group who comes to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ that one day we're all going to be gathered worshiping Jesus by faith in Jesus as one body. Now, marriage, he says, points to that. Marriage is a picture of that. So you have Christ, the head, with authority over his people. You have the church, comes under Christ and submits to that authority and follows Jesus and we love Jesus and we worship Jesus. The husband represents Christ and the wife represents the church. And together, we glorify Jesus. The sacrificial love of Christ displayed through the sacrificial love of the husband. The joyful submission of his church is displayed in the joyful submission of the wife. And so your marriage is a witness. We touched on this a couple weeks ago. Your marriage is a witness to a watching world. But hear me, it's doing even more than that. Because Paul continues in chapter 3. Look at verse 7. Of this gospel I was made a minister, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of mystery 
hidden for ages in God, who created all things. That mystery is God bringing Jew and Gentile together under his lordship. And then look at verse 10. So that through the church, comprised of Jew and Gentile, who've given their life to Jesus by faith in him, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God, look at this, might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So what's happening here? Through the body of Christ gathering, we are declaring not only to a lost world, but to the heavenly beings, angels and the fallen angels. Right? The, the demons, you and I, are declaring even to them that Jesus Christ saves and we are part of those that he has saved. Over and over and over as we gather, we are declaring to the, to the evil forces, and you're going to see that in Ephesians 6, you don't win, Christ wins. There's victory in Jesus. Over and over, we're declaring that to them through Christ being Lord over the church and our submitting. But then what does Paul say? This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So if that's what's happening in Christ and the church, then what Paul does is he says marriage is a picture of what Christ is doing in the church. Now that is profound. This will be on the screen. Marriage is a powerful demonstration in the spiritual realms of the wisdom of God's eternal plan to unite everything under Christ. So when you and your spouse come together and it gets hard and you sin against one another and maybe even there's unfaithfulness there and there's the challenges of being married and parenting and all that goes with that. When you stay together, you are declaring not only to an unbelieving world, but you are declaring to the spiritual beings that Christ wins. Because you're pointing them to Christ in the church. And we see that relationship. And your marriage is a picture of that. One author calls this gospel reflection. Right? A reflection in the mirror isn't the reality. Like you, you're seeing yourself in the mirror, but you know that mirror is not reality. You're the real thing. That person in the mirror doesn't actually talk back to you. And if they do, that would be freaky, right? They, they don't talk back to you. It's just representing who you are. Sometimes, right, maybe that mirror is clear and you can see a good reflection. Other times, maybe it's fogged up because of the, the steam in the shower or maybe there's just smudges on it and you can kind of see it, but, but it, it's kind of hard to see. But the reflection points to the reality. Your marriage is pointing to the real thing. That's why, as I said last week or the week before, marriage isn't eternal. Marriage is temporal. In the new heavens, in the new earth, we won't be giving ourselves to marriage. Why? Because we're in the real thing. We're with Christ and the church together. But until then, God gives us this beautiful gift of marriage for many wonderful reasons. And one of those is so that you and your wife, you and your husband, can be a picture to a lost world of Christ and the church. Which means you and I should be accurately and precisely reflecting the relationship between Christ and his church. So are you in your marriage? Let me just give you a couple of examples. 
we got one more point. So hang with me. The husband who treats his wife poorly, who is abusive, who is harsh, who is critical, is proclaiming a false gospel. Because what you are saying is that Christ abuses his bride. Christ does not abuse his bride. Christ does not put down his bride. And so husbands, if you're being abusive and critical and harsh, you say, well, what does it really matter? I'm telling you why it matters. Because your marriage is to picture Christ in the church. And Christ would never treat his church like that. And therefore, you and I should never treat our wives that way. The husband who is a dictator over his wife, the one who is domineering and it's my way or the highway and always has his thumb on her and just belittling her you are proclaiming a false gospel because what you are proclaiming is that the loving gentle christ is a vicious tyrant how does christ treat his church he is loving and he is gentle towards his church now yes there's times where there's conviction and certainly his wrath will be poured out upon all those who do not believe but we want to accurately picture christ in the church the husband who abdicates or abandons his headship who refuses to lead his wife and his family, is preaching a false gospel. Because what are you saying? By your not loving your wife, you are saying Christ does not love and shepherd the church. And that's not biblically accurate. That's not the gospel. We see that Christ is the shepherd who leads and loves his bride. The wife who refuses to submit to her husband, who says, look, I'm going to do whatever I want to do, I'm not going to listen to him. I'm not going to follow his leading. I'm just not going to do it. The one who insists on doing her own thing is preaching a false gospel. Because what you're saying is that the church does not have to submit to Jesus Christ. You know what you're finding in many churches today? That same thing. We don't have to submit to the Word of God. We'll just change it. We'll just rewrite it. Makes it easier to follow. And and ladies, when you live that way, you're saying to the world, you're preaching a false gospel. One more. Husbands who desert their wife, whether it is through unfaithfulness or indifference, what are you communicating? You are communicating, you are proclaiming that Jesus Christ abandons His church. When you men, and maybe you're guilty of this now or you've been guilty of this in the past, when you abandon that marriage relationship, when you're being unfaithful through pornography or through lust or whatever, you are saying that's exactly how Jesus treats his church. And that is not how Jesus treats his church. He loved his church so much he died for her. And so we want to accurately represent who Christ and the church is. And I don't know why God in his sovereignty did it, but he did it. He gave us marriage, and he said, this is how we're going to picture it until I come for my church. And so it matters. It matters as to why you and I cannot accept that a man can marry a man. Because if a man marries a man, then you have Christ in Christ. And that does not picture the gospel. Why a woman can't marry a woman. Because then you have the church in the church. And that's not the gospel. The gospel is Christ and his bride. And it's the husband and his wife. And that's the picture of marriage. And that's why it's holy. 
And that's the mystery that he has made known. Now let me close with Paul's final statement, verse 33, quickly. However, let each one of you, he just kind of recaps, let each one of you husbands love his wife as himself. Let the wife see that she respects her husband. Right. Paul began this section by talking about mutual submission. And now he talks here about how there should be a mutual giving of themselves to the other. Husbands, loving your wives as you love yourself. Ladies, respecting, coming alongside your husband. Now let me say two closing things as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper. And that is this. Number one, I want you to understand that God's grace enables. God's grace enables. There is hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the gospel teaches ultimately you are reconciled to God. And that is your biggest problem, is you have been cut off from God, separated from God. But through Jesus Christ, through his death, burial, and resurrection, by your believing in him, you can be made right with God. And once you're right with God, everything else can fall into place. But not only are you made right with God, but hear me, you're also reconciled to one another. So if there is turmoil in your marriage, you can come back to the hope of the gospel that through Christ, you can be reconciled. If there is dissension with somebody in the church, you come back to the gospel to say, but Christ has already purchased that reconciliation. We are ministers of reconciliation. Therefore, we can come together and work this out and be one and be united because of the hope of the gospel. There is hope. God's grace will enable you. Young folks who are maybe struggling with pornography or struggling with same-sex attraction or you're struggling with who am I in your gender, there is hope if you would just stop listening to the lies of the world and just come to the truth of the gospel. Just genuinely just seek out, Christ, who are you? Who are you? What have you said? What have you done? And you will be amazed at who Jesus is. And you will fall in love with him and give your life to him if you'll just come humbly. But then there's a second thing, God's grace that forgives. You know why marriage isn't easy? Because, because it's two sinners living together. together. You, you can, can be, be by yourself, yourself and just one sinner, all kinds of habits. Just yourself alone, you can do all kinds of damage because sin. And then you put two people together? Man. That could be interesting. But here's, here's why marriage can work. And here's why we stick it out. Because you're not two sinners living together. You're two forgiven sinners living together. And that makes all the difference. And that's why your marriage, if there's two believers in it, should look very different than a marriage where there are two unbelievers in it. And then some of you have the challenge of there's one believer in the marriage. And you're, man, you're there, you're sticking it out, you're being faithful, and you're praying. I mean, I commend you for that, and keep, keep praying, and keep loving, and keep just shining Christ in hopes that your husband, your wife will see that and come to faith in Christ. But there are two forgiven sinners living together. I read this quote earlier this week, and this is how we're going to close out this, this series on marriage. Your marriage, when you stay together, is not a battlefield. Maybe some of you, that's how you would describe your marriage, as a battlefield. Pastor, there's been a lot of carnage. 
that's taking place in our relationship. But hear me, your marriage, when you stay together, is not a battlefield, but it is a victory parade. Demonstrating God's power to keep us together under Christ. It is all by God's grace. His grace that will enable you to stay together and His grace that will forgive you when things aren't working out the way they should or when you made a mess of it. God's grace that forgives. And so husbands and wives, single folks, widows, wherever you are, let us uphold the sanctity of marriage, the mystery of marriage, and let us point, wherever you are in your stage of life, let's point people to Jesus Christ, the only one who can save, the only one who can forgive, the only one who can, who can reconcile. And, and I know I preached longer than I wanted to, but, but I want to say one more thing. How you and I treat people who disagree with us on this matters greatly. Because let me tell you why. If we believe that sin destroys, and if we believe that hope is found only in Jesus, let me tell you what's happening in this sexual revolution. People are looking for fulfillment. They're looking for happiness. Some of them are doing it quietly. Some of them are just in your face with it, screaming, yelling. They, like, they want to persecute the church. But if we believe that sin destroys, a day's coming. A day's coming when they're going to wake up and they're going to feel empty. They're going to feel broken. They're going to feel taken advantage of because what they thought would fulfill them does not fulfill them. Just like your ultimate fulfillment can't come from marriage. It has to come from Christ. And so if you and I call people names, if we put people down, if we belittle them, and that's the temptation because that's how maybe they're treating us and we want to fire right back. If we're not willing to open up, to have a coffee with them, to hear their story, to love on them, just to listen to them. No, not, not going off or diverting from what God's Word says, holding fast. Because here's what's going to come if the Lord tarries. In 15, 10, 30 years, all of those people are going to be broken. And they're going to be looking for hope. And if you and I have not shared the love of Christ with them, you know the last place they're going to come is right here. And this is the first place they need to come. Because if we believe that sin is what sin is and what it does, at some point, many of them, let me tell you something, the church is going to look a lot different in 30 years. When all those broken people with all that sexual baggage now sit here with us. And they're damaged and they're broken, but yet in the midst of that, they can find the love and the hope of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus changed you. And your sin is no different or worse than theirs. It's the hope of the gospel. So man, we take the love of Christ. We do not back down from what the word of God says. I am not saying that. Do not misunderstand me. I've spent four weeks talking about this. So we stand upon it. But man, we love them. And we want to see them come to saving faith in Christ. Would you close your eyes and bow your head? Father, you have given the church a mission. I mean, we are to go to the ends of the earth and we are to make disciples. Father, that's never been easy. God, we talked about in men's study this past Wednesday, Jesus' words about persecution and suffering that would come their way. Lord, this, is, this has never been easy. 
But we've lived in a culture in which for many years people have held to some biblical truths or thoughts or opinions and Lord, it hasn't been difficult to take a stand for what we believe is the truth of God's word when it comes to marriage and sexuality. But God, the culture we live in now is different. And so Lord, marriages have been impacted. People's thoughts, their hearts, their desires have been impacted from sin. And now they've got people cheering them on. And Lord, it's so easy just to get caught up in that. We've got people standing against the church in violent ways. So, Lord, we just need your help. We need your grace. We need your forgiveness. We need courage. We need boldness. We need the Spirit to fill us and strengthen us. We come to you, God, because no matter how the culture in the world around us changes, our mission will never change. And that is Somebody reminded me this morning in their prayer, we are simply beggars telling other beggars where they can come find the bread of life. We don't have it, Jesus. It's not within us. It's you. You are the hope. You are the hope. God, you are a great God. We're going to sing about that in just a moment as we declare how great is our God. So, Father, as we sing this final praise song we just want to give you the praise and the glory for that lord just speak to our hearts lord prior to our going into the lord's supper right now help us to use this final song god just to prepare us to to eat of the bread and drink of the cup we ask all this in jesus name amen i'm going to ask you to stand I'm just going to ask you to respond however the Lord worked in your heart, whatever he's leading you to do, maybe to come kneel and pray, maybe just to prepare our hearts as we eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So as we sing, you respond. The splendor of the King Clothed in majesty Let all the earth rejoice
You may be seated. Our deacons are going to come forward at this time and take a seat on the first two rows. While they're coming, um, it is never my intent or my design to just take the Lord's Supper and just tack it on to the end and kind of rush through it. And I preached about 10 minutes longer than I had intended to. So I know it's already quarter to 11, so please do not, um, please don't, please don't, like rush through this all right just take your time i know what time it is but uh but let the lord be glorified in this and so we're going to eat of the bread first and then we'll eat of the cup and um you don't have to be a member of Northside to do this you do have to be a believer in jesus christ a follower of christ one who has personally experienced his saving grace one who has believed in his death burial and resurrection you cannot partake in something remember something that you had never personally done and so what we do if you've Never done it here before, or maybe not been in church in a while. We pass this out, and then we'll eat the bread together. So just hold on to it, and then I'll guide us in that. And so this is what the word of the Lord says, For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So deacons, if you'll stand, let me pray, and then they will pass out um, the bread. Father, we Come to you as we prepare to eat of the bread and then in a moment to drink of the cup. Lord, we feel the weight of this moment because we remember. We remember, Jesus, how exactly you laid down your life for us. We do not want to take this lightly. We do not want to rush through this. We do not want to take this, Lord, if we are not prepared in a way that is ungrateful or a way that is ungodly. So may we focus upon you. And may you be glorified in that, in Jesus' name, amen.
deacons, you may be seated. Jesus said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Because in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Deacons, if you'll stand, let's pray. Fathers, we drink this cup. We are remembering that apart from the shedding of your blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But we also have the direction, the, the, the direct of the command that we're going to do this, Jesus, until you come. So this morning as we eat and drink, there is a remembering, but there is also a looking forward to that day, Jesus, when you come for your bride. So as we drink, we drink with hope because of the hope of Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
Jesus said, this cup is a new covenant in his blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Amen. We'll have a trash can available right out there in the foyer as you leave. If you just will throw your cups away. It's been a great day in the house of the Lord. encourage you to come back tonight. Um, there's a sign-up sheet for the fall festival at the end of the month. You can sign up uh, for that. Um, please participate. Don't forget about the ministry opportunities that we have to serve the needs of those in our community. If you'll stand, our Deacon of the Week, Ryan, will dismiss us with a word of prayer. Again, let's just kind of gather together in prayer today, Lord. Lord, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for being that perfect sacrifice, Lord, that even though that we have turned away from you, that we have sinned against you, that you came for us, you died for us, you paid the price that we deserve to pay, Lord, to get bring salvation. Lord, do ask you work in us that we would be truly living for you, that we would be loving you as we should, that we would be loving others as we should, and that we would be faithfully spreading your word to others. Lord, ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.